0: You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters, because accounting matters. On today's episode, we brought back Nicole Harger and talked through accounting for assets held for sale. I would like to apologize in advance for the acronym I dropped in this one. I'm sure many of you CPAs will get flashbacks to Tim Gearty from Becker Study Courses, and I'm so sorry. But I think it's also pretty funny. We hope you enjoyed the episode and learned something new. This is Sarah Cage and I'm joined again by my co-host Adam Olson, Embark's national quality leader and backed by popular demand from her dad, her biggest fan, Nicole Harger.
1: (laughs) Nicole, you have a good story about your dad watching these podcasts, don't you? Hey, yes, you know, he likes to give me constructive (laughs) feedback, there's been improvement. Hey, you guys are asking me back for a third round, so I think we're good. Yep. Tell him to
0: rate, review and subscribe. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, it's that time of year again, the holiday season. Everyone is focused on their holiday shopping. Retailers are focused on sales. And so we figured there's no better time than to talk about accounting for assets held for sale. So that's what we will be digging into today. And to kick us off, let's start with what are assets held for sale? What do we mean when we say that? And when might a company come across having to consider this?
2: Want me to take that one?
0: I would love that. (laughs) Always start with you, Adam. Yes,
2: of course. Well, I don't know. You might mix things up every now and then. Uh, Yeah, but for sure. So asset sale for sale are, you know, essentially going to be relevant whenever the entity, you know, plans to dispose of an asset or maybe a group of assets and liabilities, which is often kind of referred to as a disposal group, um, obviously by sale. And there can be, you know, a variety of reasons why an entity, you know, might be selling off um, a disposal group. You know, it could be a strategic opportunity there where, um, you know, maybe they're no longer pursuing a certain line of business or a division or something along those lines. And so they're looking to kind of. Um, dispose of that to a willing buyer. Or on the flip side, you know, in more distressed situations, um, you know, if you think about an entity that's maybe cash flow strapped and they're looking for ways to generate some cash flow, mm-hmm. um, they may you know, search to sell off you know, certain assets they don't plan to use in operations or a division that isn't maybe profitable or something along those lines um, in order to you know, mitigate going concern issues or something along those lines. Um, you know, in order to be classified as Held for Sale, so the, you know, the guidance is in ASD 360. Um, there are specific requirements that have to be met. Um, you know, That being said, not all assets that end up getting disposed of or even sold for that matter are necessarily going to qualify to be classified as assets held for sale. So just something else to kind of keep in mind.
0: All right. Well, I know we're here to discuss assets held for sale, but sometimes I like to go on little bunny trails. So really quick. <laughs> If assets are disposed of by something other than a sale, is the accounting different?
2: Yes. So in in short, yes, the accounting is different. So if you're going to dispose of, you know, an asset or a group of assets or a disposal group, um, but it's not going to be through a sale. So, you know, a a common example is just an entity decides maybe to abandon like a group of assets because they're not going to use them um, anymore. Those assets are gonna continue to be classified um, as what we refer to as held and used. Mm -hmm. So kind of like how you view all other assets until obviously ultimately they're abandoned. Um, So they won't qualify as being held for sale because they're not being sold. Uh, One thing to keep in mind is when there is a plan to abandon assets, there can be other like accounting considerations that come into play. So like, namely like impairment because you're no longer planning to use the assets as intended or you know, If there isn't an impairment related to it, maybe it's just revising the useful life because you know, you're you disposing of them or abandoning them um, sooner than uh, maybe originally anticipated.
0: All right, well, I'll hop back off my bunny trail and get back on track. So let's start by looking at the requirements to meet the held for sale classification. Okay. Say we have a company considering disposing some of its long lived assets by sale, what's step
2: one? yeah so i think the first step is obviously just figuring out what are we getting rid of right yeah so what assets or maybe assets and certain related liabilities do we plan to dispose of by sale um you know usually it's pretty obvious especially on the asset side what you're getting rid of you know sometimes if liabilities are going to be included in the disposal group um, just making sure you understand which liabilities to include that they should be really directly related to the you know, the disposal group being transferred to the buyer, their legal obligations of the buyer. Um, you know, those are the types of liabilities if they are included in the transaction to include in that disposal group. So common ones that usually come into play, you know, sometimes they, there will be trade payables included with maybe the disposal group. There could be lease liabilities if you're transferring some lease arrangements with their um, tax you know, or legal implications, things like that if they are you know, legally obligated for those. Um, they could be other types of liabilities included, but once you kind of figured out what is going to actually be disposed of, whether it's a single large asset, a group of assets, a disposal group made up of assets and liabilities, um, the next is to walk that, you know, that disposal group through the classification criteria for health for sale. And there's essentially six criteria that all have to be met in order to qualify.
0: All right. Well, that sounds pretty easy. So let's take it one at a time, starting with the first criterion management committing to a plan nicole can you talk a little bit about that for us
1: yeah so essentially there needs to be an adequate plan in place um, to sell the disposal group generally this plan includes as adam alluded to the assets and or liabilities that make up the disposal group um, significant actions that management has to um, take in order to complete the plan um, as well as the expected timeframe of the sale. You know, and generally speaking, all of this is well-documented, well mm-hmm. right? As with most of accounting. county.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's hard to argue you have a sufficient plan if you haven't like probably put it on paper. <laughs>
0: it's up in my head, I promise, yeah. So let's say the company has commitment issues, they're not willing to commit to a plan. Is this criteria not met then?
1: Uh, Yes, that's correct. So if the company does not have a clear plan, this criterion is not met. So in other words, if they're just exploring a possible sale. um, Shopping around, dating a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, This- What am
2: I worth? (laughs) This criterion
1: would not be met. For further, I guess, essentially, all appropriate approvals for the plan must be obtained for this criterion to be met. So if a company's governance policy or ownership structure requires management and or board approval and that approval has not been obtained yet, this criterion is also not met.
2: Yeah, and I would just also add is like, you know, sometimes um, the governance structure will also require shareholder approval. Mm -hmm. And whether or not like... Through shareholder approval is necessary to also, you know, show that a commitment to a plan has been made. Um, really, kind of just depends on like who controls the company, like as part of the shareholder group. Although in a lot of cases, management or members of the board are already, you know, part of the majority shareholder, and so their approval through the shareholder process may be perfunctory because they're already approving it through their board um, representation or as a member of management. So it kind of just depends. Um, there, whether or not the shareholder approval can also be an additional layer.
0: All right, that seems relatively straightforward. So what about the second criterion?
1: Yep, so the second criterion is that the disposal group must be available for immediate sale. Um, so in its present condition, the disposal group, for lack of better words, must be ready to go. Um, and it's subject to terms that are usual and customary for sales of such assets. Um, but generally the company has to have the intent and the ability Mm -hmm. to transfer the assets. So for example, a company is looking to sell a building and in preparation of that sale, they decide to do some major renovations. In that situation, this criterion would not be met as the office building is not available for immediate sale. However, if there are capital improvements that Are more routine and customary, such as scheduled repairs and maintenance, Mm -hmm. um, that would not preclude the group, the asset group, uh, being ready for immediate sale. Um, You know, it's also important to note that this criterion does not restrict a long lived asset or disposal group from being used. So um, if it is available for immediate sale, the remaining use of the assets or disposal group is really incidental to its. Recovery because the carrying amount is generally recovered through the sale. In addition, it also does not require this criterion does not require a binding agreement for a future sale. So, when the FASB was deliberating this guidance, they really concluded that requiring a binding agreement would really inhibit timely classification for assets held for sale. Um, you know, it's just important to point out too that if there are terms that are really delaying the sale, it, they should be analyzed to see if they are usual and customary.
0: Okay, I'm gonna double click on that last phrase right there. What do you mean when you say usual or customary terms?
1: So it's gonna vary by entity as well as the terms of the agreement, but commonly this, is, um, this could include things like buyer due diligence, um, regulatory or lender approval of the sale. Um, there could be other terms that exist that would need to be considered. Um, such as like a down payment hour sale or timing of transfer of the disposal group. Okay, that makes
0: sense. So let's move on to number three. What's criteria number three?
1: Yep, so criteria number three is the company must have an active program to locate a buyer. This one is pretty straightforward. Uh, The company has to essentially be marketing the disposal group for sale. A lot of times this is done through a third party, Um, so let's say the company knows they're going to use a third party, but they haven't decided on who this criterion would not be met. And and there are times where the company doesn't use a third party. They use internal employees to serve, um, in this function. So,
0: so our typical third parties, we'd see like maybe a broker or an online platform where you could use. Okay. Makes sense. So we've reached the halfway mark, three down, three to go. (laughs) <laughs> and just to reiterate what Adam said earlier, all six criteria must be met for held for sale classification, right?
2: Yes. Yeah. So all, all six. So if you've already struck out somewhere in these first <laughs> three, you know you're you're kind of out of the ballpark here. So, um, you know, definitely something you want to make sure is that you're you're meeting all of these, and and really just as you're going through this assessment, you know it's important. Some of these things are pretty subjective, or there's just some judgment involved, and they're very entity specific, and so just making sure you're, you're kind of documenting your assessment of each of these factors, um, you know, in some type of memo or something like that to support the ultimate classification. You know, your auditors will be very, very thankful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll save you a lot of headache, you know, later on. So, you know, just something to keep in mind.
0: It's a win for everyone.
2: Yep. <laughs> keep
0: the auditors happy. <laughs> so let's move on to the fourth criterion. And I know this is a big one that centers on the timing of the sale. So Adam, can you talk a little bit more about that one?
2: Yeah. So this criterion really focuses on um, that the sale needs to be probable of being completed within a year. Um, And so you may be asking, you know, why was one year selected? And really, you know, the FASB, when they were deliberating this guidance and trying to think about, you know, under normal circumstances and customary terms, you know, what's the time period it would take for an entity to really kind of go out to market and um, find a buyer and kind of close on that transaction. And they felt that you know one year was reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, as we mentioned, with documenting things for your auditors and just you know, assessing this guidance as a whole is that there can be a lot of subjectivity. And this is kind of one area where there is a lot of subjectivity because you're essentially trying to predict today that you're gonna have a sale of this asset group or sorry, this disposal group mm-hmm. um, within a year. Um, So, you know, a lot of judgment that goes in there, especially when you hear the word probable in any any accounting lingo. (laughs) And so probable here, you know, very similar to other areas of gap, it really kind of refers to the contingency guidance in ASC 450, which is basically translated loosely into that a sale is likely to occur within a year. Um, And if you're a numbers person, you know, the percentage you can kind of keep in your head in practice that a lot of people use is like a 75% likelihood. Uh, But again, it's that one-year sale-will-occur kind of um, metric that you got to think about.
0: Okay, and are there any exceptions to the one-year rule? Like, let's say a sale is expected in 13 months, is the held-for-sale classification out the door? Not
2: necessarily. It would actually kind of depend on the rationale for maybe why the sale is expected to occur in a period beyond a year. Um, so the FASB did provide kind of three limited exceptions to this one-year rule. So circumstances that could arise in kind of the um, the course of a disposal disposal group sale process that would be permissive. That's that word? I don't even know. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> permissive,
0: permissible.
2: Permissible, yeah. I, I knew that. Anyways, <laughs> sorry, little tangent there. That would be allowed, you know, if, if certain criteria are met. So. You know, we can we can definitely take a, a deep dive into those. I'm sure that's where you were heading with this. No, no
0: I was just gonna move on. That's <laughs> no. Let's definitely walk through each of those exceptions, and then maybe provide an example.
2: So the first condition, um, or I guess, say exception, um, to that one-year rule um, really relates to when the entity is, you know, expects that there's going to be a condition in place that's not imposed by the buyer, but it's by some other party that's going to extend the period of when their sale can be completed um, beyond that one-year time frame. And the actions required to respond to those conditions that are imposed on them can't start until they already have kind of a firm commitment for that purchase and that um, firm commitment for the purchase is expected to be probable within one year. If you have all those factors aligned, you can essentially meet the exception to go beyond that one year because you, you've got someone putting something on your plate that you can't meet until you actually have a firm commitment in place. And so there's all these factors that would extend it beyond that one year timeline.
1: Yeah, so a great example um, of this exception is, you know we once had a client that was selling off a significant portion of their business. Um, and the sale actually required approval by the Federal Trade Commission. So because of that, it actually took about sixteen months from start to finish before the sale was complete. And so since those circumstances extended the time frame of the sale, the company proactively responded to the unanticipated circumstances. Mm-hmm. All of the other help of sale criteria were met. Uh, they were actually able to classify this disposal group as held for sale um, in two annual, consecutive reporting periods, so.
2: Yeah, yeah, good example. So like regulatory approvals, you know, some other type of legal approval, lender approval, things kind of outside, you know, where they're waiting on someone else to do something and they've got the purchase in place, they just can't close the deal yet. Uh, The second exception here is when you've got also a firm purchase commitment has been obtained um, but in this case, you've got a buyer that you know, kind of is imposing certain conditions on the transfer that weren't expected. and those conditions are going to extend the timeline of completion of the sale. But in addition to that, you know, the conditions that are imposed um, by the buyer, you know, you, you basically have to look at those and also um, respond and say, yes, we can initiate whatever remediations we need to do to meet those conditions, and we expect that there will be a favorable outcome for whatever conditions were put into place. So, A common example here is you know a lot of buyers are obviously going to do their own due diligence you know let's say they're buying like a a set of buildings or equipment or something like that as part of the disposal group Um, and they go to maybe physically inspect those assets Um, and as part of that inspection maybe there's a ton of unexpected damage or some like you know environmental remediation that might need to be done that they weren't anticipating and so as a condition to closing the sale, they say, hey, we didn't, this wasn't part of the terms of the sale. We want you guys to fix all this stuff, clean it up, whatever needs to be done. And the seller in you know, looking at that is like, well, this is gonna take some time. And so because of this, you know, we'll do it, we'll start it right away, but it's gonna take us more time um, that will extend us beyond that one year period, but we expect to satisfactorily meet those demands. All those conditions aligned, you could then also have the exception of the one year rule. And then the last one here is when you've got um, you kind of go beyond the one year circumstances where you have kind of unanticipated factors that could come into play during the sale process. So, you know, like unanticipated circumstances is one criteria. You're still kind of actively trying to market and sell the disposal group. And you've met all the other criteria, but there's just something like outside of control of the entity, outside control of the buyer that... Or uh, the, the potential buyer that happens that causes um, the sale period to extend. So a lot of times, in these cases, people kind of think of like macroeconomic events. Um, you know, maybe there's just during the the period of sale that they're trying to search for an active buyer. You know, the disposal group is priced fairly. Everything is being marketed. Um, but there's just a downward turn in the economy and maybe the buyer pool dries up or the people aren't just you know, looking as actively as before. And so it's taking a bit more time mm-hmm. um, to complete that sale. If all those factors kind of align and you still meet the rest of the criteria, um, you, can, you can also make a case for an exception for the one year.
0: So those exceptions seem to be a little nitpicky, and there's a lot of ands and ors there. So is there a place where somebody can go and look at this?
2: Yeah. Where do we pull
0: this from? Yeah, so (laughs) ASC
2: 360 um, obviously, you know, provides all this guidance. They actually have, like, I think there's an example for each of these different types of exceptions in the guidance as well. So you can see some illustrative examples. So definitely look at the interpretive guidance um, and the illustrative guidance in um, ASC 360.
0: Awesome. Well, let's move on to criteria number five. And are there any exceptions to this rule before we dig too far in? Uh, no,
2: there <laughs> okay. are Yeah, there aren't here. So criterion five is basically saying that the disposal group that's being actively marketed, um, you know, basically is being sold at a reasonable Um, selling price that's comparable to the fair value of that disposal group and really here it's basically saying you know if a disposal group is not being priced fairly then it's probably indicative that you know management or the entity is not really intending to sell the group kind of back to like if you're just testing the waters and you want to see like I'm going to put a really high price tag on something and just see if anyone's willing to bite you know that's kind of goes back to you know other criterion that we've already talked about that may be tripped for there as well. So that that's really what this is getting at is that to really demonstrate that the disposal group is ready for an immediate sale it needs to be priced, um, you know, commiserate kind of with its fair value.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. And last but not least, criterion number six, it is unlikely significant changes to the plan will occur or that the plan will be withdrawn. So what can you share on this one?
2: Yeah, so... You know, basically, if um, all the other criteria are met, it's usually pretty intuitive that there isn't going to be a plan to change things up and you don't expect one um, because it's, it's hard to argue that you can meet most of those other ones um, if you plan to change things up because you probably don't have a firm plan in place and you don't have an active you know, program to market because you don't know what you're selling because you're changing <laughs> that or you're not sure what you're going to price it at or whatever the case may be. Um, so this is kind of that like catch-all criterion, but generally if you've got the other kind of ducks in a row Then this one should kind of fall into suit as well. You know, when people are thinking about changes to plans, you know Sometimes you just think about like historically, you know with what they've done with other maybe disposals that they've had and Kind of like what they're you know, have they made significant changes to plans in the past? You know, what were the drivers of some of those things? Do they feel like there's any variables here you know, presently that could cause um, that it's likely that a change will occur. You know, those are maybe some of the qualitative considerations to make, but like I said, usually if everything else is looking pretty good, this the six criterion will usually be met as well.
0: Okay. And before we move on to the next part, I'm gonna tap into my inner Tim Garrity and I came up with a groundbreaking <laughs> acronym to help our listeners with these six criterion. Because, you know, you need to have this in memory. It's not like you can just go Google this stuff, right? (laughs) All I came up with was um, PAPA U, which stands for a plan in place, available for immediate sale, programmed to locate the buyer, probable within one year, actively marketed at a reasonable sale price, and unlikely significant change to plan.
2: I think that's well done. Did I do it? You
0: crushed it. PAPA U. Tim Garrity, watch out. I'm coming for you. (laughs) All right. Well, we can get back on track. I keep doing the bunny trail thing today. Uh, We've got our six criteria. We have them memorized. You're welcome. (laughs) How does one actually account for a disposal group that is classified as held for sale?
1: Yep. So uh, a company will carry the disposal group at the lesser of its current carrying value or... The fair value less cost to sell prior to measuring the group's fair value less cost to sell a company really needs to evaluate whether assets that are not subject to asc 360 um, and any related liabilities should be adjusted in accordance with other gaps so specifically um, you would perform impairment testing first over your other assets, so think like, mm-hmm. you know, your AR, your inventory, financial assets, et cetera. Um, then it would be your goodwill and indefinite lived intangible assets for um, impairment under ASC 350. And then you would go in and you would test your long lived assets uh, that are included in the disposal group. You know, this uh, it's important to point out that this order of impairment is actually different from assets held and used where Goodwill is tested last for impairment. So for assets held for sale, the order between long-lived assets and Goodwill and indefinite lived and tangible assets is flipped.
0: Okay, because we don't like to keep things straightforward, apparently. (laughs) Um, So you mentioned that we will carry it at the lesser of carrying value or fair value, less cost to sell. So can we dig into that fair value, less cost to sell calculation? What needs to be considered when determining the fair value of the disposal group?
1: Yep, so your fair value should be measured in accordance with ASC 820. Um, it needs to be determined from the perspective of a market participant, um, taking into account, you know, appropriate discount rates, valuation techniques, um, and other assumptions about the disposal group as applicable. Uh, The fair value also includes costs that a willing buyer and a willing seller would include in pricing the asset. So what is included in cost to sell? Any transaction costs that are expected to be incurred by the seller would be included in the estimate of cost to sell. So these are all costs that result directly from and that are essential to the sale of the disposal group so said otherwise, there are costs that would not have been incurred if the company had not decided to sell the disposal group. So some examples of these would be broker commissions, legal titer and transfer freeze, and then closing costs. When help for sale classification is met, a lot of those costs are not yet incurred. Um, Therefore, management must estimate these costs. If the one-year exception rule that Adam alluded to has been met, meaning the sale is going to take longer than a year to complete. These costs may need to be discounted. Um, Internal costs can be included as long as they are incremental to and related to the sale of the assets. Mm -hmm. Another example, like bank fees that are uh, paid to renegotiate corporate-level debt as a result of the sale would not be included in these costs because the debt is not part of the disposal group. Okay, so
0: once management has determined it's fair value, less cost to sell, what's next?
1: Yep, so you would compare your fair value, less cost to sale, to the carrying value of the asset group. So let's say the fair value, less cost to sell is $20 million, but your carrying value is $30 million. Um, the company would then record a $10 million loss on sale. It's important to note it's not an impairment loss. Um, and then going forward, they would can start to carry the disposal group at the $20 million. So, kind of reverse situation, if the fair value, less cost of sale, is $35 million um, and the carrying value is $30 million, the company will continue to carry the disposal group at the $30 million. So, there's no gain that gets recorded. And that's because you can never write up the carrying value to higher than. What it originally was on the date held for sale uh, classification was met.
0: U.S. gap always holding me back from taking gains. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about how does a company present assets held for sale in its financial statements?
2: Yeah, so let's maybe start with the balance sheet. So assets, you know, and or liabilities um, that are part of the disposal group are going to be classified as held for sale, you know, separately on the balance sheet. And this can be done really kind of one of two ways. So a company can decide to essentially include just kind of a summary assets held for sale, you know, current assets held for sale, non-current kind of in total and same for any liabilities on the balance sheet, or they can also break down the major classes of assets or liabilities included in the disposal group on that balance sheet. So, you know, breaking down to, you know accounts receivable inventory fixed assets whatever that are in that held for sale group Mm -hmm. um if an entity decides not to break it down on the face of the balance sheet because you know if you got a large disposal group can probably look pretty ugly to have all these lines on there (laughs) Um, you know alternatively you can kind of do that single line presentation um, you would just add additional disclosure of those major classes in a footnote. Yeah, speaking of disclosures, there's also, you know, some additional information you would include just about the, you know, the assets that have been um, classified as held for sale. So, you know, the most obvious is just really including a description of, you know, the facts and circumstances that are going to lead to this expected disposal. You know, what's, what's the rationale for why they're planning to maybe get rid of this, this group of assets and, and liabilities, um, you maybe want to talk a bit about you know, the manner that they are going to dispose of it, the expected timing of when that disposal is going to occur, um, any gain or loss recognized, you know, kind of what Nicole was alluding to, so just talking about any um, gain losses that were recognized. Um, Where that gain or loss is reflected on the income statement, so maybe just, you know, describing the line item it's recorded in, if it's not presented separately, and then, you know, to the extent that any of the the disposal group um, was part of any of the segment reporting, um, just, you know, talking about where that's reflected within the segment reporting under um, ASC 280.
0: All right, so if an entity writes down its held-for-sale disposal group because the fair value is less than the carrying value, how is that presented?
2: Yeah, so generally what you'll see, you know, obviously, like I said, you're gonna present those totals on the balance sheet. Um, you know, if you want to reflect just, you know, a total assets held-for-sale, liabilities held-for-sale, et cetera, on the face of your balance sheet. But let's say like in your footnote, you're gonna break down that list of assets and potentially liabilities. Um, the way they reflect that adjustment is usually just some type of like valuation allowance. So it's kind of added as a reconciling item to that total mm-hmm. list of the disposal group. Um, and that's, you know, that's basically where that, that adjustment is tracked. So, you know, it's a kind of a contra asset account, valuation account. It really isn't allocated like to the individual assets in the in the disposal group itself. It's really just reflected as a total adjustment. And then, obviously, as you, you know, get into subsequent reporting periods, if you haven't, you know, disposed of um, the asset group yet or the disposal group, rather, um, you know, any adjustments would just kind of run through that account as well.
0: Well, speaking of subsequent accounting, how often does a company subsequently assess the carrying value of the disposal group?
2: Yeah, so every reporting period um, you have to, you know, if you haven't disposed of the um, disposal group and it still meets the criteria to be classified as um, assets held for sale, then yeah, then every reporting period, you basically have to look at the fair value, less cost to sell, and you compare that to the previous um, reporting periods, fair value, less cost to sale. So (laughs) then the next reporting period, the current fair value, less cost to sale increases, let's say it goes up to $21 million. We now have like a $1 million gain we need to record there. Um, So we obviously would adjust that valuation account from, you know, a $10 million adjustment down to a $9 million adjustment, and that $1 million change would go to a gain. Um, And basically bring our kind of cumulative carrying value of that asset or that disposal group to $21 million. Um, And we would do this every reporting period as necessary. Um, You know, one thing she had mentioned as well is that you know, the upward adjustment in this valuation account, so the reduction of the original loss, like you can only go all the way back to that original carrying value of 30 million. In our example, you can never kind of go above and beyond that. So, so long as you have recoveries that get you back to that original carrying amount, it's fine. But, um, you know, any any increases in fair value beyond that, we would never go above 30.
0: That's really helpful. I feel like that's easier to visualize that way. So. Let's say a company changes its mind for whatever reason and decides not to sell the disposal group or the held-for-sale criteria are no longer met. How do they unwind the held-for-sale classification?
1: Yep, so the asset group would then be reclassified as held and used, and the carrying value of um, that asset group would need to be adjusted. So it's going to be now either Uh, carried at the lesser of the carrying value before held for sale criteria was met, and then it needs to be adjusted for any depreciation, amortization, or impairment losses that would have been recognized during the period that the asset group was classified as held for sale. Or you're gonna carry it at the fair value as of the date the decision not to sell or the date held for sale was no longer met, The new carrying value would then be compared to the carrying value just prior to the change in plan, and a subsequent write-up or impairment loss would be recognized. Um, I should mention that once an asset group is classified as held for sale, the company no longer records depreciation, amortization, or impairment loss for the related assets of that disposal group. That's why when thinking about the initial carrying value, it needs to be adjusted to reflect those items if they were to reverse that classification.
0: All right, sounds like a lot of extra work. Maybe we should avoid those commitment (laughs) issues.
1: (laughs) Um,
0: How does a company handle the presentation and disclosure of a change in plan of sale?
1: Yep, so the company would no longer present the asset group as held for sale in all periods that are presented in the financial statements. Adam talked about earlier, like if you had your major classes broken out um, and disclosed in a footnote, that footnote would be removed. And instead, the company should disclose what facts and circumstances led to the change in plan of sale. Um, In addition, if any gain or loss is recognized as a result of the change in plan and sale, um, that gain or loss gets reported in income from continuing operations.
0: Okay, so another hypothetical. If a change in their plan happens after the reporting period, but before they issue their financial
1: statements, is the classification impacted? So, if held for sale criteria is met after the balance sheet date, but before financial statements are issued or available to be issued, held and used classification still stands and is still appropriate within the financial statements. Um, It should be noted that if the company is planning on or actually does sell the disposal group at a loss shortly after, so before the statements are issued, um, the held and used asset group should be evaluated to determine whether a held and use impairment loss existed as of the balance sheet date. Um, further, if the sale is completed after the reporting period, it may indicate that held for sale criteria was actually met as of the balance sheet date. So you kind of really need to rethink through that assessment a little bit. Um, Even though the company would still present the asset group or the disposal group as held and used, um, the company does need to meet the disclosure requirements under ASC 360-10-50-3, which really essentially, it's all the disclosures that are required as if the assets were really classified as held for sale.
0: Did you memorize that, the Reference it on my notes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't memorize. That's not the that's expectation only for Adam people. Memorizes. Adam has them memorized. Yeah. 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 Um, well, anything else you want to leave our listeners with around health for sale, or are you capable of topping the Papa You mic drop?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave acronyms that's, to you. Yeah, for that's for sure. you.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, if nothing else, then I think our listeners should remember that there are six criteria, Papa You, um, and that you have to meet all six in order for you to meet the classification and you do not depreciate assets held for sale. I learned that one the hard way, and you learn more from your mistakes than from your successes, (laughs) and that has never left me. Um, Thank you, Adam and Nicole, for joining me again and talking our listeners through accounting for assets held for sale. And thank you to our listeners for following along on another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant, subsequent, authoritative guidance issued.